Welcome to London Riverside Church Podcast. We hope you have a great day. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Uh, now today uh, we continue in our series, but of course it's Father's Day and uh, we have a guest speaker with us who is all the way from Walthamstow, hey. Emmanuel Church. And uh, some of you may not know Doug, if you're new to London Riverside Church, it was pre-pandemic that yeah. we last had some time with you Doug, but uh, you know, Doug runs a great church there, leads a great church. But also, Doug is part of the family here. He, he's been connected with us for a long time. Yeah. He's a close friend of, of Ken, who's my predecessor here at the church. And uh, so you've been part of the journey. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we're just really blessed that you're going to share God's word with us today. Can we give him a very warm Dagman welcome? Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, bless you. Bless you. Wow, good morning, church. How are you doing? You good? I woke up this morning and the house was full of the smell of bacon and sausage and eggs. I couldn't believe it. I thought, well, who's here? My wife's actually in Spain uh, at a wedding. And uh, so, so who's going to do, do the cooking? Who, who's the, it was my daughters, who are normally night owls. Um, and somehow they, they found the inspiration to be early birds this morning. And they cooked me a surprise breakfast. On the very day, I'm supposed to be leaving the house early to come to church. <laughs> So I got here a little bit later than I anticipated because I just had to eat that. But you know what I mean? I had to, I had to, yeah, I had to do it. Had to be done. But so um, I woke up to a, a really nice morning breakfast on a Father's Day. It's good to have that opportunity. It's good to be with you today and good to share God's word. If you've got your Bibles with you, why don't we turn to um, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. I think they're going to put the time of how long I've got to preach on the screen. Is that right? So I don't preach over. You know what it is with preachers. But Proverbs 13 verse 22 says this, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. In the message translation or or paraphrase of this passage, it says a good life gets passed on to the grandchildren, looking at the sort of generational impact of what it means to pass on something good in terms of legacy. If I were talking about legacy, then I would call it leaving footprints in the sands of life. And we need to do that. And I want to say that to every man in the room, every father, every grandfather, that we have a big responsibility of doing that for the next generation. See, a legacy is a gift bequeathed or left to benefit another and is protected by law in most countries. But I think our text presumes that the legacy that's left is going to be a financial one. There's going to be financial benefit for it. But, you know, legacies can be ideological. They can be material. They can even be spiritual. And I guess today... We're looking at the issue of leaving spiritual legacy and leaving an impact for the next generation. And when it comes to legacy, there's a couple of things I want to say. Number one, you don't get the choice whether you will leave a legacy or not. You will. That choice is gone. You don't get that choice. The choice you get is whether you leave a good one or a bad one. That's the only choice you get when it comes to leaving those kind of footprints. So I'd like to have a look at a couple of biblical father figures and see how well they did in leaving legacy for the generation. And maybe we can pick up some inspiration, insight, and learning so that we do better in our generation than they did in theirs. Because these first few stories are not particularly brilliant. The first person would be the man called Lot in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And uh, when their flocks began to grow and they began to prosper as herdsmen uh, and farmers, they decided that they would need space for one another's 
flocks and livestock, and it just was becoming too cramped, too problematic. So Lot decided he would move to the plains around Sodom and Gomorrah, because they were verdant and, and green and lush, and they would easily sustain his flocks. He thought, that's, that's where I want to go. But then when we read further in the text, we find that Lot had camped quite close to the city, which was notorious for its immorality and its lack of concern for the poor and the needy. Before we even get any further than that, we find that he's now in the city, and he's become a part of the governing body. He's sitting at the gates. He's sitting with those who are the influential leaders of that particular area. He got sucked in to that place. And eventually, God began to judge that area for its behavior, and Lot was you know, was, was in the midst of that. And if it hadn't been for his uh, Uncle Abraham's prayers, he may well have been taken out. But God heard Abraham's prayers, sent angels into the region to rescue Lot and to move him out. Now, as they move him out, he's going to lose everything. He's going to lose his position in the city. He's going to lose his money, his finance. He's going to lose his flocks, his house. Some of his uh, intended son-in-laws, they never came. They thought it was ridiculous. They, did, they laughed at him. When he talked about angels, he said, I've heard from God. And they went, you... <laughs> which tells me something about the kind of level of spirituality he had. Wow. If his sons would laugh at him and go, or potential son-in-laws would go, you're hearing from angels, you're hearing from, you're hearing from God. <laughs> Come on, man. And they laughed. It would tell me a little bit about where he was at spiritually. But he lost it all, and uh, he had to leave that materialism, that pursuit for position and influence all behind him. And, and, you know, in order to keep him safe, he didn't really want to go up to the mountains and get a lot of distance between him and problems. He said, could I go to this town nearby? And the nearby town was called Zoar, I mean small. And sometimes God, to protect you, puts you in a restricted place. Sometimes not all of the restrictions on our life are a bad thing or of the devil. Sometimes God allows lives to become restricted and a little tight and, and cuts off our options because he knows he's trying to save us from destruction and confusion. He really thank God sometimes when we're in a tight spot. It may well be that he's trying to preserve our lives. But he was there in Zoar. He became afraid of that. He wasn't used to that kind of restriction and limitation. And then he decides to run up to the mountains anyway. And while he's there, his life unravels. I don't know how you self-medicate when you're going through problems of loss. He was going through bereavement because he lost his wife. He was going through business problems because all of those businesses and material assets that he had, they were gone. So how do you handle all of that? And how do you Walk your way through the problems, Dad. For, for, for Lot, it was alcohol. It was alcohol. He decided that he would drown his own sorrows and self-medicate in that way. And as a result of doing that, obviously, he loses perspective. He loses a sense of moral direction for his own life. And in the midst of all of that, we find one of the ugliest stories in the Old Testament as he impregnates his own daughters. I'm being careful with my wording today because, you know, obviously people watch these videos or, or listen to your programs. But that's, that's the bottom line of it. I mean, I mean, you may not like the ugliness of a record in Scripture about somebody's stories. Who wants that stuff recorded in the Bible about their lives so that every generation to the end of human history can read it? Huh? Well, who would want that? I, I personally, I could think of other stuff to write about me than some of my, my weakest, most vulnerable moments. But however, the New Testament says these stories are written down not to embarrass those engaged, but for your learning and for my learning. For those who, upon whom the ends of the age have come, you should look back on these stories and go, okay, if that's what they messed up, I need to do better. If that's where they missed it, I need to make sure I learn the lesson of somebody else's mistake. I don't have to bump my nose. If somebody else bumped their nose, I need to learn the lesson of why you crashed so that I don't have to do the same thing. 
And so we're looking at his story because it all ends up with a horrible, the horrible conclusion of alcoholic inability or instability and sexual immorality. Here's a dad whose life crashed because of those two things. Sexual confusion and promiscuity or uncontrolled, because of the alcohol we get it, but sexual crisis. Alcohol. And I'm not one of these guys that believes in prohibition. Jesus turned water into wine. I know the evangelical church has been trying to turn it back ever since. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> However, though Jesus drank wine, and I know there was an American preacher I used to listen to quite a lot, he said, no, the, old, the, new first, century, the first century wine was like a fortified fruit juice. They dehydrated the fruit, and if you wanted it to drink it, you, you just add water to it, and there you go. It wasn't alcoholic as we know it. People have got this confused. So when Jesus drank wine, it was really like this. And I'm going, you kidding me? So the Pharisees were upset with Jesus because he drank Ribena. <laughs> is this, is it? They called him a wine bibber. However, even though he drank wine, he never preached one parable with slurred speech. Hello. If there's no control, then don't go there. If you don't know how to drink responsibly or how to know when to say that's enough for me and I can act appropriately in front of those who are watching because remember, you're leaving a legacy. Then don't do it. See, one of the problems is the next generation that watches you and I can see in the story of Lot that his children could see no future. They couldn't make sense of where tomorrow goes after the crisis that we've been in. We can't see it. We don't know how, you know, our fiancés didn't follow us. It seems like everybody else, every town around here has been destroyed. So where do we go? How are we going to have children? How will we have a next generation? We don't know. And they tried to think it through and they made a terrible decision to do so and gave birth to two of the most problematic nation groups on the planet. And it took 400 years to work out the sinfulness of that problem. It's, it's incredible what happens when we leave the next generation without clarity as to how to do life, simply because we didn't know how to resolve the crisis points in our own. Fathers, let's learn from Lot before we mess up. The second father is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, and it's Eli. Eli was a well-respected priest initially uh, in the nation of Israel. He, he did very well. But as you can see, as his life progressed, he became a little bit sloppy with his ministry. And a little, he lost his edge in ministry. He did, let's be honest. His powers of observation and discernment were losing their edge. I mean, Hannah, a lady called Hannah, came in to pray one day. She was childless. And she came to pour out her heart to God in the temple. If only God could hear me and, and answer my prayer for the desire for children and our family. I'm feeling very pressured by my husband's second wife. She can have all kinds of children and he tries to compensate by giving me lovely meals and, and addressing me as one he loves. But it's hor horrible to have potential that's not, not realized. You sit with unrealized potential, you feel frustrated. I know I could do more. If you have a womb but no child, you have potential but no realization. And she's going, Dah. and she begins to pray and pour all of that out in the temple area. And while she's praying, Eli looks at her, but he doesn't understand what she's going through. And he says, this woman's drunk. Because, you know, some drunk people speak without, they move their lips, but they don't, they don't make a noise. Have you seen them do that when people are really drunk? I've, I've helped some guys home after nightclubs, and they're like, I'm going, what, what did you say? 
The lips are moving, but there's no sound. So I guess that's what Eli thought when he saw Hannah. Her lips were moving, but he couldn't hear a sound. He thought, ah, oh, she's walked in here, you know, a bit lit up. She's got a skin for What's wrong with this lady? But it wasn't true. He had completely misunderstood the situation because of his own lack of observation and discernment. The other thing that I noted about Eli as a father figure was this. Although his sons were in the place of worship, there was no place for worship in his sons. <laughs> they didn't worship at all. In fact, they, they practiced immorality. They threatened people, intimidated people at the temple uh, over the offerings and all that kind of stuff. They were terrible, those guys, terrible. And uh, I guess you think just because they're there in the sanctuary, they must be okay. And I think, fathers, you need to, to wake up and go, just because your children, while their children follow you to church, it doesn't necessarily mean that they end up in Christ. So while my family are around me and I have the opportunity to be an influence and a voice to them, I must take the opportunity. I can't be slack in thinking that the Sunday school teachers are going to lead my kids to Christ. It's my responsibility to make sure that whether I'm in or out of church, I'm making an input into the children's lives around me so that they can come to faith. I'm not sure what Eli did, but he raised sons who couldn't care less, even though they went to church and were there in, in the place of worship. I think, thirdly, too, that Eli lost his sense of moral authority to discipline his sons. A prophet came to him one day and said, you have placed your sons above God. There's a judgment over your life, Eli, because of the way you behave. And he probably would have wondered, why would that be said to me? But at the end of the day, he lost his moral authority to discipline his sons because he participated in their sins. It's very difficult for fathers to discipline their children for the very same sins that they practice. They lose moral authority. And you say, well, how do you know that he practiced those sins? Well, here's one of the things that the sons did. When the offering was, was given in the temple and the people came to bring their offerings, they would look at the pieces of meat that the people gave and went, that would make a fantastic barbecue. So that's not going into the temple. That's going home with us. And the people would go, no, no, we brought this choice piece of meat as an offering to God. Don't take it. They will listen. They go, listen, we've got a choice. We'll give you two choices about this meat. We can take it by force or... We can take it by force. Which one would you prefer? People were like, hey, you know, I'm good. Have what you want. And they, were took, they took it. And he said, well, what's the big deal? How did Eli get involved in something like that? Well, there was a battle one day. And, uh, and Eli heard that the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence in the nation, had been captured by the enemy. It so shook him that the Bible says he fell off his seat, fell backwards off his seat, Landed on his neck and broke his neck. And the reason why he broke his neck was because, the scripture says, he was heavy. Now, I don't hope, I, I do hope with all my heart that the Bible doesn't have it in for tubby people. I really do. In fact, I think the opposite's true. Because in the King James Version of one of the Psalms, it says this. He that trusteth in the Lord shall be made fat. It actually says that in the Bible. Have you not read that? Which means it's skinny people who are in unbelief. Look around and find some skinny people today and say, you need to get a faith upgrade. Come on. <laughs> no, the Bible is not making uh, or body shaming a, a priest. What the Bible is saying is he's, he is heavy because he ate well. He liked the gravy that his sons produced when they cooked their stolen food. 
And you can't discipline your sons when you participate in their wrongdoing. You lose moral authority. Yeah, he judged Israel, but he left a blemished legacy. One last father, King David, a phenomenal military leader, a desperate father, a desperate father. And when we read his story in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, it's kind of the concluding moments of his life, if you read those texts. Because there's a list of all of the unfinished business that David had. He never made adequate provision for what would be the last season of his life. He left it untidy. He left too many unfinished issues on the table that somebody else would have to deal with. I think fathers have to be a bit smarter and a bit sharper than that, don't you? That we don't leave too many loose ends for those behind us. Because if there's one thing that's sure about life, is that we're going to die. The moment you leave the womb, you're heading for the tomb. We're not in the land of the living. We're actually in the land of the dying. And at some point, that has to be sorted. And because we don't want to talk about it, we push those things to the furthest corners of our mind. And things get left to those that they shouldn't be left to. So David list, left the list of uh, a lot of unfinished business. He was very passive in preparing for death and the traditions beyond. They were wondering, well, who's the next king? Who, what, what's going to happen? When he didn't speak clearly about all of that, one of his sons tried to jump in and usurp the position. It got, all, it got ugly and confused because he was just so passive in dealing with those key issues. I mean, we, we know that David was passive over other issues in his life when his daughter was sexually assaulted. He was angry about it, but he didn't do anything. Well, he couldn't because in the, in the back of his mind, he was still rehearsing some of the secret sins that he'd been involved in, some of the secret sexual encounters that he had had with a lady called Bathsheba. And so David was very paralyzed by his own secret things. There was one text that I never used to understand, and it was when the Bible says that there were some priests who were disqualified from functioning. And one of the... Areas of dysfunctionality for you as a priest were if you were a priest, excuse me, gentlemen, but if you were a priest with crushed testicles, I mean, just the thought of that is painful. <laughs> you couldn't minister. I'm like, wow, wow. And I realized over time that there are people who sustain a secret injury that nobody would really see because crushed testicles aren't things you really display in public. But it robs you of the capacity to beget life. It's well hidden. Nobody sees that injury. But you sustained a personal and intimate injury that stopped you being a life giver. It paralyzes you. David had that problem. That's why he couldn't deal with the problem of sexual assault in his own household because he felt so guilty about his own behavior. Look, these fathers are living with the same pressures that any father could listen to. Like I told you, I'm not having a crack at these people because their stories are in the scriptures and they're difficult, ugly, grim, dangerous stories. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to make a judgment about them. The judgment's already been made. But what I'm saying is they are there on display because the scriptures say they're to help us so that we can be better fathers along the line. Now, let me conclude today by looking at one father in a very positive light. The Apostle Paul was a spiritual father who outlined for me what legacy leaving was all about. He left 
a good legacy because he lived a good life. That's the key. He left a good legacy because he lived a good life. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, Paul says, look, you may have many teachers, but you're only going to have one father, and that's me. So I want to look at some of the things that he did as a father figure as we conclude this morning. In Acts chapter 20 verse 17 to, I think, 38. Let me read. It's quite a significant passage of scripture, but let me read it to you. It says, but when we landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus, asking them to come down to meet him. And when they arrived, he declared, you know that from the time I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I've done the Lord's work humbly, yes, and with tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews, yet I never shrank from telling you the truth, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for Jews and Gentiles alike, the necessity of turning from a life of sin to a life in God, of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to Jerusalem, drawn there irresistibly by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit has told me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. Let me say plainly that I have been faithful. No one's damnation can be blamed on me, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants for you. And now beware, be sure that you feed the shepherd and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his blood, over whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. I know full well that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you, After I leave, not sparing the flock, even some of you will distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you, night and day, my many tears for you. And now I entrust you to God and the word of his grace, his blessing that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. I've never coveted anyone's money or fine clothing. You know that these hands of mine have worked to pay my own way, and I've even supplied the needs of those who were with me. And I've been a constant example of how you can help the poor by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he finished speaking like this, he knelt and he prayed with them. And they wept aloud as they embraced him in farewell. And most of all because he had said that he would never see them again. Then they accompanied him down to the ship. It's Paul having this wonderful closing conversation with these leaders, these, this leadership team from Ephesus, saying to them, I've been a father figure among you. I've loved you, served you, honored you. And I went, let me look at the things that Paul did to show himself to be a good father. Maybe these would be powerful lessons for us. Number one, he said, I want you to recognize my manner of life. I've been humble. I have been uh, um, sensitive to people, especially when I've been under attack and pressure from false accusations amongst those around here. I have tried to be faithful, sensitive, and remain consistent in how I have conducted my life. Secondly, I've been consistent in the investment of my life. He said, I have consistently invested in you. I've held nothing back from you that I felt was good and helpful to you. Number three, I've never been ashamed to preach the gospel. 
You could look at me as a father figure and see a mentor and a model that would always take the opportunity to be very bold and very clear about what I said I believe. I never compromised, I never backed down, backslid, backed away from the truth. That's what you saw in me. Number four, I was willing to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit says, you're gonna have suffering and imprisonment and difficulty, but I've listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit, however difficult those things may have been. Number five, I didn't count my life dear to myself. I was willing to live with purpose and high priority. I had to live according to the calling that Christ had placed on my life. I couldn't settle for less. Number six, I had a blameless reputation. He said, you can ask anybody. There's nobody that can blame their damnation on me. If anything of difficulty happens to them, if they happen to end up in a Christless eternity, it wasn't because I kept my mouth shut. I told them the truth. They refused to listen. I lived a blameless life. I'm blameless. No one can tell me that I was after their food or their money or their clothing. I didn't uh, uh, covet anybody else's material benefit. I was happy with what I had. As a matter of fact, I worked hard with my own hands. I worked hard. Money and wealth were not things that I coveted. I warned people about corruption in the church. Sometimes in church, you're going to find all kinds of things that happen. Stay true. Stay focused. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. That's what I told people, he said. I acknowledged, number nine, the the virtue of hard work. I worked with my hands, provided for myself and for those around me. I tried not to be an excessive burden on the church or anybody else. You know how I've lived. I've worked hard. I was willing to serve others generously. In fact, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I tried to do that, tried to model that, tried to live that as a father figure. And then he says, let's kneel down and pray before I go. I've prayed for you. I've done it many times with many tears. My heart for you has been to lift you before God and to ask for his help and benediction on your life at every point I could. What a wonderful picture of a father. Honestly, what an awesome picture of a father. And I read that and I go, Jesus, when I grow up, please help me be like this. (laughs) Please help me be like this for my girls. Girls that would wake up early in the morning and make me a breakfast. They deserve a dad who loves them like this. Please help me be like that. And as they knelt down with Paul, and many of them were grieved that this would be the last time they would see him. They cried their hearts out. They cried their hearts out. And maybe they didn't express, we've got Paul's words, but we don't have much expression from them. But I think their tears spoke eloquently. Their tears were probably the best commentary they could make on how they felt about that leader. How they felt about his fatherly heart towards them. They wept that they would see him no more. You know, there's a story in Second Chronicles chapter 21 about a king called Jehoram. And there's no tears for him when he dies. Which tells you how the people felt about him. In fact, it says, after about two years, he was totally incontinent and died writhing in pain. His people didn't honor him by lighting a great bonfire, as was customary with his ancestors. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned for eight years in Jerusalem. There were no tears shed when he died. It was good riddance. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the royal cemetery. That's in the message. This king died, and nobody shed a tear. 
Paul says, you'll never see me again, and everybody's weeping. Who do you think was loved as a father figure? And so I say to you this morning, my brothers here at uh, London's Riverside Church, can we be the kind of fathers that will live the way Paul lived and had the testimony of life that Paul lived so that you can leave a legacy the way he did? And make sure that we do that for the next generation. Good people, good men, do that for the next generation, for the next and the second generation beyond that as well. Who knows what generational impact we will have if we start to be the kind of men that God will honor with that kind of blessing. I know that as you look back over the story of people like Lot and Eli and David, you're going to go, there's resonance there. I can feel where I've made my mistakes. And I get it. And I'm not here today to make anybody feel guilty and condemned. That's not my intention. My heart is that from today we do better. We can make a change beginning from this afternoon. Change can happen the moment we decide we want it. And I'm making an appeal to every man here to decide that the footprints you leave in the sands of time are going to be good ones. Good, clear ones that set a path for the next generation to live safe and secure. And in the blessing of God. Can we do that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the clarity and the simplicity of it. There were people in the scriptures who, whose example has not been particularly brilliant and favorable. But as we look at their story, we learn. We become wiser. We can do better. And I'm asking this morning for every father and every man under the sound of my voice, every father figure under the sound of my voice, that we'll make a decision that as from this very moment, we plan to do better than we've ever done before. We plan to be a greater example, a more secure model, a more passionate leader, a better influencer, a more secure counselor, and a braver support. Give us the courage to stand firm in the midst of all life's challenges and be a secure template for others to follow. May they mirror what we model well. For the honor and glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. That's all from us here on our LRC podcast. If there's anything else you would like some more clarification on, or you would like to take the next steps in your journey, then why not head over to our next steps page at londonriversidechurch.com forward slash next steps. That's all from us here today and we hope you have an amazing week.